From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. You know Governor Jared Polis is serious about something when he sings. A while back, it was about saving people money. This week, a chant. Thank you all for joining us. Let's say more housing now. More housing now. More housing now. CPR's Andrew Kenny and Nathaniel Miner shed light on this Herculean effort to make things more affordable. Then unstable is how meteorologist Mike Nelson describes spring weather, from snow to grass fires. And my favorite, grauple, the little dipping dots that come from heaven, that little soft hail. And when Luis Antonio Perez started out as a storyteller, it could be isolating. Look at this, I'm the only first-generation American. At the time, I was a college dropout. I'm like, I'm the only person who doesn't have a college education in this room. How that led him to create CPR's new podcast, My Story So Far... CPR leadership partners help bring inspiring music and fact-based news to everyone through gifts of $10,000 or more. If you're interested in joining this group of dedicated supporters, come to CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Housing is expensive in this state. You probably know that. Governor Jared Polis has a plan, one that could reshape cities and towns and upend the power structure. We're at a real fork in the road in Colorado. Do we want to go down a route, and we've seen this play out in other states like California, where there's cities with average home prices above a million dollars, 16-lane highways that have eight-hour rush hours, or do we want to create a better way, a Colorado way, to plan for a future that's livable, affordable, and works? for all of us. The governor's route is sure to set off a big fight at the state capitol. CPR reporters Andrew Kenny and Nathaniel Miner will be covering that. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Hello, hey, Ryan. What is this bill fundamentally designed to do? The general idea is built around supply and demand, that there isn't enough housing for the num- number of people that live here and work here. So Polis's solution is to change the rules to try to allow more housing to be built. Okay. And you know he's serious about it because he literally ended the press conference where he announced his plan by chanting. Let's say, more housing now! More housing now! One important thing, he doesn't just want more housing, right? He wants that housing to be a very specific kind of housing. What would that be? Yeah, dense housing. So think smaller accessory dwelling units or so-called granny flats, townhomes, uh, duplexes, triplexes, even up to sixplexes. Sixplexes. The idea being that these smaller, denser units could be more efficient, even more affordable. You're building more homes on less land, which should mean less sprawl. Yeah. And we do have examples of this in this state, like Capitol Hill in Denver, you know, older neighborhoods or even, um, you know, the north side of downtown. Uh, there's some newer developments that are that are pretty tight. Lots of people living in a small space. You invoked Capitol Hill there in Denver. I, you know, think of most communities in Colorado not really looking much like that. I think more often of single family homes. Yeah, that's right. Even on the Front Range, which is more urbanized than the rest of the state, most residential neighborhoods are restricted to only single-family homes. That's all you can build. Local governments have set these policies that make it impossible to build multifamily on everything but a small portion of the land. Yeah, so the biggest and most controversial thing that this bill does is override local government rules to say that in most urban areas, 
all single-family neighborhoods are now open for developers to build sixplexes, townhomes, ADUs. That is a big shift in who gets to control development in this state, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a game changer. It's the state taking authority away from local governments, getting rid of this single-family only zoning, and really upending decades of precedent. And of course, it was going to p- pick a big fight with those cities and towns, which, as you can imagine, uh, you know, is not they're not going to be happy about this. No. Um, we checked in with Kevin Bomber with the Colorado Municipal League. It represents the most sweeping preemption of local land use and zoning authority that Colorado's probably ever seen, and certainly the biggest one in modern history. Important note, though, not all local governments agree uh, with Kevin Bomber's point here. You know, some actually like the governor's proposal. He had people like the mayor of Boulder lined up behind him at the Capitol this week. And some of these mayors have told me that they want the state to step in because they they think their cities need more dense housing, but it's local residents or city councils or planning commissions that get in the way. kill projects. I suppose they would say that whatever we're doing now isn't working if you look at the cost and the availability of housing. Why focus on making existing neighborhoods denser instead of, say, making it easier to develop new areas outside of cities? I have a feeling this has something to do with sprawl. Sprawl, yes. Okay. So, so Paula, uh, excuse me, uh, Polis, researchers all kind of agree that sprawl is bad for the environment. It takes farmland, it takes water, it's, it's expensive, and that infill is a more responsible or sustainable way to grow. Yeah, Polis is arguing that sprawl got us into the situation that we're in right now where everybody's stuck in their cars on I-25, and Polis says that the right kind of growth that we need to grow, but that the right growth is up, not out. Yeah. Another thing, big thing this bill does, it would prevent local governments from requiring any parking for these new denser homes. They could include parking lots, but Polis doesn't want that to get in the way of approving projects. Does this mean people should expect their neighborhood to, I don't know about suddenly look a lot different, but in short order? No, this is a common misunderstanding. This is not saying the government's going to come in and tear down single-family homes. It's not stopping anybody from building a single-family home. But what it does is it gives landowners and developers the option to build more than a single-family home, those denser options, in places where there's a market for them. It could happen a lot more easily. So I would expect that if it goes into effect, you see the first changes in places that are already leaning toward density, where it makes sense to build it, places near amenities, places near transit, and that could be controversial. Transit seems like an important concept in all of this. In the Denver area, would that mean a lot more building around rail stations? Yeah, I mean, RTD's rail stations are pretty underused, especially since the pandemic started. Basically, a lot of empty parking lots right now. Mm -hmm. And this policy could really open up a lot of development possibilities around these stations. And that speaks to the idea of trying to reduce, you know, these long commutes and lots of traffic and clogged up highways. So would this mean the state beefs up public transit offerings. Not really. This bill doesn't spend a ton of money on anything. Uh, The governor told us there could be something down the road, but he wants to focus on unleashing that private market right now for development. 
Yeah. So the state itself is putting a little bit more money into transit than it ever has before, uh-huh. which, you know, to be fair, fair, it really hasn't put much into it ever. But, you know, it's expanding busting on I-70, sort of these like, you know, cross-state or intrastate uh, transit services. But as far as like RTD or local transit providers, no, um, which could be a big problem because those places are running much less than they did before the pandemic. The hope or the idea for these guys is almost to create the demand for transit, create the situation where more transit is needed, and then maybe build the transit up later. Okay, so like if you build sixplexes, they will come kind of idea. Correct, (laughs) and then maybe put them on transit. Where does this fit into the big picture with housing? I mean, is Colorado the first state to try something like this, or is the bill following the footsteps of other places? You know, so there. If you look to our West, California and Oregon, they've passed similar upzoning laws across the state, or at least much of the state. Um, Polis decidedly said we're not like California because he sees this less as a top-down approach than those states have taken. Um, you know, to the Midwest, Mid, uh, Minneapolis has done things like this, kind of ending single-family zoning. And Polis also says we're doing it earlier than California did, so we'll get ahead of it. Um, but we talked to Christina Stacy. She's a researcher at the Urban Institute, which supports these kinds of policies. Um, and she said that in those other states, based on their studies, that pro-density laws do seem to result in more housing supply, but it can take years before you really start to see an effect potentially. This isn't going to mean all of the single-family houses around you are suddenly going to turn into high-rise apartment complexes. Yeah. So the Urban Institute, you know, like Andy said, does support these kind of policies. And what's unclear and what we'll be looking for is how long it really takes for that new supply to turn into lower rents and housing prices. That's a key question. Um, You know, the the kind of idea here is that new construction filters down. So the new construction might be more expensive. But because that's there, the older apartment next door might cost less or the single family home a block away might cost less Mm -hmm. because there's just more houses to go around. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. <laughs> this you know, is I a just, big deal. It, it's a big deal, yeah. but it's also it's a nut that so many communities have not been able to crack. Hmm. Uh, well, to keep the nut idea here, in a nutshell, <laughs> this could be a monumental shift in how Colorado cities are built, how we live in them. Yes, uh, It'll indeed take a while for this to play out on the ground. Let's focus on the immediate fight, though. Does this bill stand a chance? Yeah, I mean, this is a bill sponsored by a popular governor who just won re-election, and it's got some of the most influential high-name Democrats in the state behind it, Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno. The bill's been assigned to the Senate local government and housing community, should get its first hearing soon, hasn't been scheduled yet. Uh, One thing I wonder about, though, is how many Democrats will peel off and decide not to support it? Are they going to get roasted by a bunch of constituents who are worried about that duplex, triplex coming in in their neighborhood? And could that kind of party split end up with some negotiations? Maybe this bill gets taken back a little bit? Or do Democrats end up being fully on board? Do they even pick up Republicans who support this idea? Yeah, I think it'll be fascinating to hear how the idea of character, neighborhood character, Mm -hmm. plays into this. Mm -hmm. What are the feel of the places that we live? Mm -hmm. And I do feel, uh, when I listen to you speak about this, that there is a a sense that Governor Paulus is trying to drive people away from their cars. Do you think that's true fundamentally? 
Nate. Yeah, and it does feed into uh, you know the state's climate goals, and he said that through the process here. Um, so you know the idea you have more things closer together. You can walk, you can take your bike, you can take a bus if it's there. Options, yeah. I suppose. All right, CPR reporter is Nathaniel Miner, who covers transportation, and Andrew Kenny, who's on our public affairs team. We discussed a bill designed to overhaul land use policy and presumably bring down the cost of housing. We'll be right back with the wacky weather that often comes to Colorado in spring. Climate change only makes it weirder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's financial backbone is built with support from the community. There are many different kinds of gifts that can make an impact, including gifts of real estate. You can donate real estate that is owned outright or real estate with an existing mortgage. And the property can be located anywhere in the U.S. Your generosity will support the news and music you rely on. Explore the benefits of donating real estate on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Spring has sprung. Should we expect flowers or flurries? Chief Meteorologist at Denver 7 Mike Nelson is back for our regular weather and climate chat. Hi, Mike. I tell you, spring is what we expect, pretty much everything. Just the other day, we had heavy snow in the mountains. We had strong winds over southeast Colorado with temperatures in the 80s and grass fires. Temperatures in Denver only in the 40s, and we had a mix of rain and snow. And my favorite, Graupel, the little dipping dots that come from heaven, that little soft hail. So that's a typical spring day. I mean, that was all at the exact same time. My goodness. And we can expect that for the next month or so? Yeah, it's a very unstable time of year. There's a big change happening right now across the country as the sun gets higher in the sky. Of course, it's getting warmer across the south, so we get more of that moisture coming up from the Gulf of Mexico. But the cold weather doesn't want to really give it up yet, and so we have a real clash of the air masses every year. But it seems this year a particularly supercharged jet stream that's been bringing all these big storms in from California. At the same time that we had all that weather the other day, Los Angeles had a tornado. I mean, this is a crazy time of year. I do think of this time as particularly snowy historically. Tell me if that's true and tell me what the forecast might show. Well, the 30-day forecast is still calling for uh, slightly colder and wetter conditions. That would take us through about the middle part of April. And I think that is true, although we have not seen a lot of snow here in the Denver area uh, this March. The mountains have just been getting pounded. I mean, the San Juans have some of their highest snow totals they've had in over 35 years. So there has been a lot of snow falling, just not right here on the Front Range. April is still one of our snowiest months on average here along the I-25 corridor. So that could indeed change in the next couple of weeks that we could get a couple of good soggy snowstorms. The vernal equinox is the start of spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Let's get maybe elementary about this. Uh, Vernal means related to spring, by the way. What precisely is going on, like astronomically? Well, as the Earth goes around the sun, because it's tilted on an axis of 23 and a half degrees, there's certain times that the North Pole is tilted away from the sun, which would be wintertime more toward the sun in the summertime, and we're right in between now. So it's about 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of darkness. Back to the notion of snow. How's the snowpack 
which is really one of our largest reservoirs, uh, holders of water for the warmer, drier months. It's very good right now. Every major basin that we serve, Colorado and the Arkansas and the San Juan, etc., all of those are above average on snowpack. There are some areas, especially down in the southwest, that are almost 200% of normal, which is great news. It does open up the uh, concern about snowmelt flooding in the spring when the warm temperatures really start to bring that snow down in a hurry. But I also think it'll be interesting to see just how much that impacts Lake Powell. Now, it certainly is not going to fill that reservoir back up. I don't think we'll ever probably see that again, but at least it might bring it up a little bit as we go into the warmer months this year. And Lake Powell is an important water savings account. All right. You began our conversation with just the symphony of strange weather that we're seeing. How much is that typical of spring? How much of that might be intensifying because of climate change? Well, as we've talked about before, weather and climate are related, but they are two different things. And the analogy that I always like to use is that weather is like one play in a football game and climate is the history of the National Football League. Hmm. But as the climate system gets warmer due to the increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels, and we add 100 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere every single day globally from the burning of fossil fuels, that carbon acts like a blanket, and that traps heat from escaping back into outer space. So the whole climate system is warming. As it warms, that means the air can hold more moisture. We've talked about these atmospheric rivers. You hear about that on the news quite a bit. And moisture plume that's coming in from the Pacific Ocean, that's getting supercharged because of a warmer climate. And so the weather that we've seen pounding California this year because of the position of the jet stream, which drives that atmospheric river, also has an impact across the weather conditions all over the nation. So with climate change, everything gets bigger. Droughts get drier, floods get wetter, heat waves get hotter, and you can even change cold waves a little bit because the jet stream shifts a little, and once in a while, these colder pools of air can break free from their normal Arctic home and drop farther southward. So as much as it would seem counterintuitive, with warming, you can actually have regionally colder weather for a period of time. Mm. It has been called global weirding, and uh-huh. I think that's a very good phrase. Right, because it's not exclusively warming, as you say. Mike Nelson, in between our chats on the radio, we'll sometimes send each other studies or articles that catch our attention. You shared one about wind and solar power as they relate to land, to property, This is research out of Colorado. What caught your attention? The little amount of land it would take to actually switch our nation completely over to renewable energy. And the study was from the Renewable Energy Lab up in Golden. And it said that when you actually look at the footprint of what it would take for solar panels and wind turbines, it's very, very small. One or two percent of the land mass in the United States And think about a giant wind turbine farm. I mean, you can still have cows grazing amongst all of that, turbines spinning up above. They're looking at putting farming in between the photovoltaic cells in some areas so that you could grow crops underneath the solar panels. You can have sheep grazing underneath the solar panels. So these things can all coexist very, very nicely. And we are able to 
provide renewable energy to power the country because it is always windy somewhere and always sunny somewhere on a big enough scale. You just have to capture that energy that comes in free from the sun and transport it via good transmission lines from source to need. We can do this. Why is it important to think about the land footprint of renewables? I I know this article compared it to traditional fossil fuels, Mike. Well, it's important because uh, we do have the space to get this done. And we have all of the technology. It's just a matter of the, the will and the leadership to get it done. So that's the part that I try when I speak to schools, when I speak to other groups, and when I talk here with you every month is the fact that we actually can fix this problem. Climate change is big, but big problems need big solutions. We can do it. And what was surprising me was the amount of land to do it is not as big as you would think. Hmm. Maybe the kick in the pants, so to speak, is what we heard from the world's climate scientists this week, a final warning on the climate crisis. The UN Secretary General calling it a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, I guess invoking the movie title a bit there. Mike, when, when things are this bad, people might have an inclination to bury their heads in the sand. And I am curious how you, as a meteorologist who's on TV, who indeed visits classrooms, how do you fight against that propensity to just kind of tune it out because it gets so dire? There's a message that uh, I will not take credit for because I learned it from uh, Dr. Scott Denning up at Colorado State University, who is just a brilliant climate scientist. Climate change is simple. Add heat, it gets warmer. It's serious for all of the issues that we talk about, the drier droughts, the, the heavier flooding, sea level rise, melting of the ice caps. But it's solvable. We can fix this problem. And we have the technology. We just need the will to get it done. I would say that the, the physical science of climate change is pretty simple. As I mentioned, add heat, it gets warmer. The political science of finding the solutions, that's a heavier lift. But we can get it done. And the reason I speak out about it is because we need all of us to let our leaders know that this is an extremely important problem. Whenever they say, you know, when we do a survey of people and they say, what are you worried about? And we've got immigration, we've got the war in Ukraine, we've got the cost of goods, we have inflation. Look at climate change is way down here. It's like number 10. That's because they're asking the wrong question. If you're concerned about all those other things, you're concerned about climate change because climate change is a threat multiplier of every single one of those other issues. I like the idea of keeping our eyes on the fact that the problem of climate change, the, the fact of it, the science of it, is really quite straightforward in contrast to the political science, as you say. Mike, thanks so much. Nice to chat with you again. Ryan, always a pleasure. We'll see you next month. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. He joins us monthly to talk weather and climate in Colorado. When we come back, storytelling as catharsis. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. 
everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It can be powerful to tell your own story. It can be cathartic, healing. And that is core to the new CPR podcast, My Story So Far. Creator and host Luis Antonio Perez is here with a preview. Hi, Luis. Hey, Ryan. Your mission is to showcase stories from communities that haven't necessarily been heard in the past. You held gatherings all over the state where people could share their lives on stage. One of the events was around people who'd been formerly incarcerated. What stood out to you about that experience? So with that community, we went to the basement of the Tattered Cover, and not only were these all folks from the same community, but the people in the audience were also part of that community. So this idea that everyone might recognize something in the experience. Yeah, and that's what struck me the most, the knowing head nods. What was an example of something someone who'd been in prison said that got nods across the room? So one of our storytellers is uh, David Coleman, and David talked a lot about his journey in rehabilitation, getting to a point where he thought he was ready. It's time for me to get out of here because I'm rehabilitated. And then coming to the realization that he wasn't quite there and it was going to take him a whole another set of years and a whole different approach to be able to get to the place where he felt like he could really contribute in the way that he wanted to. Mm. And there were so many people in the audience that were just nodding their heads to that. It's sort of making all of that effort to become the person that you promised yourself you would be, thinking you've arrived, and then realizing, wait, there's still more work to do. I can do more here. Yeah, I can imagine that gap being painful, too, the mm. gap between what you think you're ready for and what you might be ready for. Mm-hmm. I know that storytelling is a passion for you. You began sharing on a stage a decade ago in your hometown of Chicago, which I learned, Luis, recently is like the birthplace of poetry slam. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. One more thing that makes Chicago cool. Uh, (laughs) But over the years of doing this, you you noticed something was missing. What? When I first started uh, doing stories and telling stories on stage and sort of this burgeoning community at the time, it's a profound experience. You get to hear people tell their truths right in front of you. And, you know, it's not going to be a surprise, but in these communities where it's either like performing arts or in the arts or anything like that, sometimes they're a little homogenous. There's not a ton of diversity once you start really getting into these communities. And, you know, I just started to notice for myself, like, man, you know, I'm the only one of me here. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, and uh, having grown up in a city, you know, where like I'm exposed to a lot of diversity, that's what I expect in every scenario that I'm in. But just for me, what that means for me is like, you know, hey, look at this. I'm the only first generation American. I'm the only person who has immigrant parents. Or at the time I was a college dropout. I'm like, I'm the only person who doesn't have a college education in this room that's telling stories tonight. Or I'm the only person who grew up listening to hip hop or things like that. Things that are like these cultural or experiential touchstones for me that I wasn't sharing with the other people that were in the community. Right. And you were talking earlier about how powerful it is when there is a common recognition of an experience. So I imagine you wanted to create more of that. Yeah, you know, and I was lucky enough to be able to connect to a community eventually uh, through the Silver Room and an event they do called Grown Folk Stories, which is still like the best show in Chicago. What is it, Grown Folk Stories? Grown Folk Stories, Okay. yeah. And that community was extremely diverse and finally I could hear voices that sounded like me. Um, I want to hear my story too in someone else's voice. Oh, that's a nice way to put it. Well, you have brought this to the idea of my story so far. Uh, It's been a months-long process. Uh, Luis, how did you decide where to go 
And whose stories <laughs> to share? The world, or at least Colorado, was your oyster? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, it's I think it's the most common question that I get asked when I go to like a classroom, like a university or high school classroom. They're like, how do you come up with your ideas? Uh-huh. I try to give as honest answer as I can, which is, look, I'm just one person or whatever. If we're on a team, it's just a few of us. And all of us are limited by, you know, our own field of vision. You know, we have 130 degrees that we can see. And the producer in me is uh, feels responsible to turn your head all the time always be looking around in all directions mm. and if you see a glimmer somewhere in the distance walk towards it not with any assumptions just being a steward of people's stories and understanding that the finding the only way it happens is by doing by actually putting your feet on the ground opening your ears and going towards where you think the stories might be and just listening out for them and so one of the glimmers was people who'd been formerly incarcerated what was another glimmer give us an example of a place and a people so another big one i think for this season of the show is uh, the folks that were impacted by the marshall fire you know, there's a ton of stories, obviously, in the news about what happened with that particular, you know, tragedy. Over a thousand homes were destroyed. We'd heard a lot of news stories, but we hadn't heard personal stories from people of what they'd experienced since, or even just the specifics about not just what happened that day, but what they were feeling while everything was happening. So it felt like a natural community to approach about potentially doing a storytelling event. And we connected with some of the grassroots organizations in uh, Boulder County and Louisville and Superior. And they thought it would be a good idea for people to share stories with each other and sort of have uh, an experience of healing. Catharsis, to yeah. go back to that word. Yeah. Okay, the first episode of this podcast just dropped, and it features two stories. These are related to those folks who were formerly incarcerated. We're going to listen to one. Maybe you could tell us briefly about the organization you paired with to do this. We connected with Remerge, who is an organization that helps people who are recently released from incarceration to find resources because that process is very muddled with a lot of just misinformation. It's very cloudy. And I call them like a connector or a bridge organization. I guess their idea is to not have people return to prison fundamentally. exactly. They're trying to reduce recidivism by helping people find the resources that they need. You mentioned that this was recorded at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver. Luis, stick around. Here is my story so far. As a professional on Capitol Hill, appearances mattered to Ashley first. They were part of how she presented herself as her career took off. But then, she spent time in prison. And now, appearances mattered to her for a completely different reason. Please put your hands together for Ashley first. Well, hello. Um, I feel like I have some really amazing stories to follow. I'm a little nervous now. So so your clothes are usually the first thing someone sees about you, right? They can shape an impression before you even said a word to someone. And we all have that piece of clothing that when we put it on, we feel amazing and like we can just take on anything. When it comes to the professional world, the more neutral your outfit, the better, right? Black, navy, gray, khaki, they're all staples in in an office environment. But when I worked in Washington, D.C., it was like I was performing for people. My professional attire was the costume that I wore. In the lobbying world, you have to go into an office with confidence, and as a woman in the lobbying world, that confidence has to be supplemented with an outfit that is on point to be taken seriously. (laughs) 
So for me, I had a particular clothing item that really helped me feel invincible when I was up on the hill. It was a hunter green blazer that was just slightly different and unique. Something I suppose I guess I ultimately wanted to be. I wanted to be remembered when it came down to it. The blazer was close enough to neutral to be an appropriate color and not brilliant enough to stand out and be seen as too eclectic for that Capitol Hill environment, the land of red power ties and those white starch shirts that you see all the time. <laughs> the blazer had a subtle herringbone pattern on the outside and when I rolled up the sleeves, out popped green silk with a white polka dot pattern, like a little surprise underneath like a calm lake kind of. The silk was cooling on the inside, especially in the hot, humid DC summer days. The blazer almost made me feel like I put on my superhero cape to try to save the world, and I loved it. For a while, I felt so silly about this importance I, I placed on clothes, and I was worried I'd come off as seeming vain and narcissistic. Or <laughs> like, you know, especially as a woman, you know, sometimes we, we place value on ourselves by how we, we look. But even though I portrayed myself as this confident professional woman talking with senators and congressmen on Capitol Hill, my life was a cluster <laughs> on the outside, I will be very honest. I suffered, still suffer from imposter syndrome really badly. So I would self-medicate, I turned to alcohol, I had a really bad cocaine problem. It lasted probably like five or six years. So because of this drug addiction, I fell into massive, massive debt. Um, and I remember that fateful day I made the worst mistake of my life and used my employer's bank account to start to pay down this massive amount of debt that I had. So in other words, I committed a federal crime. I was sentenced to 27 months in the federal system. I felt like my life was over. I didn't see any point in keeping anything from this soon-to-be past life. Not my house, not my husband, not even my clothes. So about a week and a half before I self-surrendered, I began packing up everything in, in the closet. And as I set out to clear it all, I separated items into two piles, one to donate to Goodwill and one to keep. And I remember when it came to my professional clothes, I just gathered them all up off the hangers and threw them on the ground. And I was like, I'm just, gonna, I'm just done. I'm going to get rid of it all. I was going to be branded with this scarlet letter F for the rest of my life that I feel like it's just on my shoulder like you all can see it right now. You know, there's no way I'm going to get back in the professional world with a felony. Just, it's done. I felt like I was discarded, like I was damaged, much like something you would donate to Goodwill, right, and just completely forget about for the rest of your life. So this blazer is sitting on top of the donation pile, and I, I keep looking at it and picking it up and setting it back down, like, do I get rid of it? Like, I felt this, like, internal struggle that now, like, when I first thought of it, I thought it was ridiculous. I was like, I, why am I so attached to this piece of clothing? Um, but, you know, once I got to prison, everyone wears the same thing. You know, where I was, it was khaki pants, khaki button-downs, um, brown t-shirt. The clothes in prison are stiff, unyielding, and they were men's clothes in a women's prison. So gone were these comfortable clothes that made you feel like a professional or even a human being. You know, individuality is very much discouraged in prison. You're just a number, 355-22016. can still repeat it <laughs> to this day. Um, you know, after I was released, I also did a year in the halfway house. And I was wearing my own clothes again, but I still felt lost. Like, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. So I started working at Goodwill, sorting through donated clothes. And eventually, a person took a chance on me to get me back into the career field I thought I had left behind. You know, it's, it made me start to believe in myself again, so I started to set goalposts for myself. 
So I sent another goalpost to get a little bit better of a job, which led to another company believing in me, because when you're coming out of a system that tells you you're nothing, that you're insignificant, you're not worth taking a chance on, you know, you'll always be the label that you're stuck with. It can be easy to just walk off and be like, forget it. Like, I'll just go back to that life. But I wanted to keep challenging myself, keep moving the goalposts I had set. So all these moving goalposts has actually led me to the job I have now as a senior program manager for employment opportunities at an organization called Responsible Business Initiative for Justice, or RBIJ. And we are an international nonprofit that engages businesses and business leaders to use their platform to enact criminal justice change all over the country. We actually helped pass Clean Slate here in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my role in particular leads second chance hiring as well as what we call first chance hiring, which is aimed at a subset of opportunity youth to prevent that poverty to prison pipeline. But I, I finally feel like I'm, I'm starting to rebuild not, not only my life, but also my wardrobe because now I'm in a more professional environment. But I remember when I walked into Ann Taylor to, to buy you know, my professional clothes again, I just stood there and I looked at all the bright clothes and like the bright lights and I was like, I feel like I'm getting back on track. I feel like I'm remembering that I'm more than this label than I have. And the first piece of professional clothing I bought was this bright yellow shirt that has flowers on it. And the first time I wore it, everyone was like, whoa. <laughs> um, but you know, I've realized it's not about the clothes in my life. The clothes are just the representation of me, the new me that I am putting forward into this world and the person that I've reshaped and built myself into. You know, there are still people on the outskirts of my life right now that want to see me fail, that they want to see me struggle, and I'm not going to let them. Um, you know, I'm still in the process of rebuilding my life, repairing relationships, figuring out my place in the world. So this opportunity to buy these new clothes is an opportunity for me to show that I'm a different person now, how I've grown um, and learned from all my mistakes. And while clothes are ultimately just a thing, they're also a representation of how we view ourselves. I'm using these new clothes as my new and improved costume to remind myself of how far I've come, how I've personally changed, and how I can now try to help other people who've been in all of our situations. So thank you. <laughs>
What's a piece of advice you give to folks? Because I imagine there are some commonalities, right, among kind of first timers. It's really important to me that this is accessible, you know, that people are coming in feeling like they can share stories because they can. This is not a mystical thing. Everyone (laughs) has a story to share and we all do it. So often what I'll do is I'll just start by saying, listen to me, Ryan, we are experts at storytelling because we've been consuming stories our entire lives. And all we're trying to do here is tap into that knowledge Mm. to help us deliver the story that you want to share. That there's almost something innate about it. Yeah, absolutely. Innate. We just, we're almost wired for story. And then there's like some more practical things. Like we start, you can call it mining for memories or something like that, you know? Starting to think about uh, what is something that happened to you that was profound or some memorable experience that you had. And we'll start there, starting in a moment. Let's oh, just, I just got a, I got a flash. You got one. Okay. Okay. I was a kid traveling with my mom. I think it was one of the first times I was on an airplane mm-hmm. and I had a Mickey Mouse a stuffed animal that was, was so precious to me. I mean, we were inseparable. Its eyes were metal and I didn't understand security. So they took <gasps> Mickey from me and put Mickey on the conveyor belt. Oh no. And I had a meltdown in the airport because <laughs> I thought they were like absconding with Mickey. I didn't know it was temporary. That's an excellent story. See, you don't need any coaching, Ryan. You're really good. But something that I might ask okay. is uh, tell me more about the place. Like describe it to me. Describe the the it was at the airport at the security line. Yes, describe just, it to me. Uh, the hustle and bustle surrounded by strangers in a strange experience. And that was literally my safety blanket. Mm. It was taken away. It was taken away. And how, how did you feel like in that moment, like in your body, how did it feel? Terror. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Okay. I see why you do this. So what, mostly what we do is uh, we find a moment. We try to dig into the emotions of that moment. Uh, once we get in there, let's try to pull out a lesson and then from there we get into like the nuts and bolts of it. How do we start the story? How do we get to the lesson? And uh, how do we put people in that place? Okay, give us a glimpse of what's coming up in future episodes. So we'll expect those Marshall Fire stories for sure. Yeah, we'll have two episodes featuring folks that were impacted by the Marshall Fire. That'll be later in the season. And we're also going to hear from young folks in Aurora, Colorado, uh, high school students who you know, hadn't been in school for two years, had been doing virtual school for two years. We connected with an organization called uh, YABO, the Youth Empowerment Broadcast Organization, who teaches young people how to make media and tell stories. And we asked them, hey, what do you guys want to talk about? What do you young people want to talk about? And they said, we just want to talk about stuff that we care about. It's been such a tough two years. We just want to talk about family and love. Whoa. So that'll be the second episode. Luis, thank you for the preview. Thank you. Luis Antonio Perez is community producer with CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. We heard about his new podcast, My Story So Far, which you can find everywhere. And if you have a story to share or you know a community that Luis should visit, email communityvoices at CPR.org. Again, communityvoices at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Pikes Peak once bore the name of the first non-native to reach its summit, Edwin James, who called the landscape a region of astonishing beauty. James traveled west in 1820 with the first major expedition since Lewis and Clark. At 22, he was already an observant botanist, describing hundreds of plants previously unknown to Western science, including the Colorado Columbine. On that expedition, James also cared for dogs and horses, while others ignored them. 
he witnessed native people driven from their lands and settlers indiscriminately killing bison. Years later, he criticized the greed of the fur trade, translated the New Testament into Ojibwe, and turned his Iowa farmhouse into a stop on the Underground Railroad. Pikes Peak is no longer named after Edwin James, but his name does live on in the scientific names of 24 plant species, a wilderness area spanning three Colorado counties, and a 13er on the Continental Divide, James Peak. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Where are you spending Saturday night? How about in a dot of a place far from everything, but filled with music and laughter? The community of Pea Green Corner hosted one of the best parties on the Western Slope for years until COVID stopped its monthly winter series. Now the beloved variety shows are back. CPR's Stina Sieg takes us to the big return. Start in the small town of Delta and keep going. Down miles of lonesome roads, past sheep and cows, and so much corn, standing golden and dry, until you arrive at a crossroads. A closed country store, a shuttered schoolhouse, and the centerpiece of tiny pea green corner, an old grange hall painted light green. It's home to Pea Green Saturday night, finally back after a nearly three-year hiatus. Yes, if you were to ask us if we were out of practice, we are. But we think the audience might be out of practice as well. Len Willey started these shows about 15 years ago to give people something to do on long, dark winter nights. Here, he's Brother Len, and alongside Dean Rickman. Brother Dean. They're the Pea Green brothers different parents, different birth years. But in the world of Pea Green, they're twins, hosting these nights of music and comedy for the mythical 1930s radio station KPEA. Brother Dean says people compare them to long-running radio staples, like Bob and Ray and a prairie home companion. Actually, Len and I time travel, and we went back to when those shows started and they were standing around saying, what should we do? What would be interesting? And we told them exactly what to say, exactly when to do it. But even as radio forefathers, they're nervous about the momentum they may have lost during the pandemic. Brother Len says for years, they were so popular, they had to turn folks away at the door. When people can count on it every winter, then you don't do it for three winters, what happens? We're about to find out in another hour. It's already starting to fill up. Bob and Sally Beeson from the nearby community of Austin made a point to get here early. Well, yeah, we've been here before. We wanted to get our seat. And Sally, who's a big bluegrass fan, says when they found out the Knights were returning... We were joyous. (laughs) So was Nguyen Sarver, and especially her husband. They said, we're going. Yay, yay, yay! Definitely worth the half-hour drive from the little town of Eckert, even though Sarver lost much of her hearing a few years ago. But she can still read lips and hear some of the music. And she really enjoys getting to connect with others who live in the rural farmland in the surrounding high desert. They're so friendly people here. As the show starts, there are still a few empty chairs in the back, 
something that's hardly ever happened. But then the Pea Green brothers step on stage in their green, non-matching thrift store jackets. Here we are at Pea Green, where the music's played just right. With old-time dreams and melodies, it's Pea Green Saturday night. And it's clear the audience is with them. Even when some of their carefully scripted skits go a bit off the rails. I went to the Rotary Club. I know that's what this said yesterday. And they were busy. The mostly older crowd nod and sway in their seats to the band Stone Kitchen who prompts them to participate in a song called The Nervous Chicken. Later, as people line up for a potluck, it feels like a family reunion in a piece of living history. The Grange's green and white interior walls have been repainted, and the plaid green curtains have been replaced, but it's not too different from when it first opened nearly a hundred years ago. It's easy to imagine people then gathering in the same way. Because typically things are slow in the winter, you know. It's a legacy. Virginia Cosby says things are so disjointed these days, and youngsters don't understand their history. Kids don't know what it's like to come to a little country place like this. Supposedly named after the hue of the government-issued paint sent here long ago. And I love it. I just love it. Happy to drive the near hour from Grand Junction. And that's pretty common, as Brother Len puts it. We defy the law of location. And Brother Dean says that before the pandemic... There were people standing shoulder to shoulder in this whole area over here. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't move. It got so busy that they stopped advertising at all. Brother Len says the experience sold itself. It's like turning back the clock. We're back in time. Yes, we are. <laughs> and now Pea Green Saturday night is back. And the Pea Green brothers think it will be packed again before you know it. The night closes with the band, the Great Western Heritage Show. And it goes pretty late, but almost everyone stays for the whole thing, clapping and smiling. For one night a month, anyone can be a pea greener, if you can find a seat. At Pea Green Corner, I'm Stina Seek, CPR News. Next Pea Green Saturday night is tomorrow. And there's one more in April on the last Saturday of the month. You can see photos at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender, 
Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're at CPR News and KRCC.